Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. Each week, we explore beliefs and practices shaping our world, our politics, our culture. And when I look back through the archives of Interfaith Voices, I begin to see the emergence of stories about a growing number of Americans who are leaving religious traditions and institutions for a new form of belief that is less fixed and more fluid. More than none, they call themselves the spiritual but not religious. We're not talking about atheists here. People who say they believe, but not identifying with religious institutions. Since 1972, the GSS, the General Social Survey, has tracked religious identity. Today, an estimated one-third of Americans self-identify as not having a religious affiliation. This is a transition as momentous as, say, for instance, the Industrial Revolution or the Protestant Reformation or any of those really, really big turning points in culture. That's Dr. Linda Mercadante. She is a theologian who conducts qualitative research that's sociological in nature. Her focus? Understanding the spiritual but not religious, getting into those numbers with stories. A little later in the program, she shares insights from her analysis of this group, and it's described in detail after hundreds of interviews in her 2014 book, Belief Without Borders. While she says it's unclear whether we are in the middle or the end of this wave, what is clear, she says, is that the sea change in identity and thinking about meaning began after World War II. This week, a new book from religion professor and historian Stephen Prothrow sheds light on an influencer in that era, a man in the publishing world, who Prothrow suggests may be more responsible for offering new ways for people to wrestle with questions of meaning, justice, and purpose. Producer Kimberly Winston brings us the story. It may be the central conviction of contemporary American culture that what matters when you die isn't the stuff you accumulate, but the experiences you've had. That's Stephen Prothrow, reading from his new book, God, the Bestseller. The thesis of the book is in its subtitle, How One Editor Transformed American Religion a Book at a Time. It is the story of Eugene Xman an Ohio farm boy who made his way to the top of a major New York publishing house and then spent 40 years publishing some of the most important religion books of the 20th century. Here's just a few. Aldous Huxley's The Perennial Philosophy, D.T. Suzuki's Essays in Zen Buddhism, Dorothy Day's The Long Loneliness, and Houston Smith's The Religions of Man. All of these books have been staples of comparative religion classes for over 50 years. As a professor of religion and a longtime interpreter of American religious history, Prothrow argues that Exman, who died in 1975, is partly responsible for our current and growing trend towards the spiritual but not religious. I spoke with Professor Prothrow from his office at Boston University. I think the story of how you came across this story is 
almost as interesting as the book itself. Tell us how you came across Eugene Xman and his files. Well, I got a call from a woman who was an acquaintance of my mother about 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And she wanted me to come and see her father's religion books. But I get a lot of calls of people asking me to come see their religion books. And they usually are ministers from New mm-hmm. England who have a lot of musty old books that aren't particularly interesting to me. And so I wasn't particularly motivated. And I just kind of let it slip. And then I called her and she answered and there had been a death in the family. And so we put off me coming over. And then I called again a few months later and she had died. I later learned that the reason she called me was because she had cancer and Mm. she wanted to take care of her father's affairs before she passed away. And then finally, I ended up going over there and being greeted by her husband, whose name is Walter Kess. And one thing that really struck me when I first looked at the books was that they weren't old 19th century books. They were mostly mid-20th century books. And the very first book I pulled off the shelf was Martin Luther King's first book, Stride Toward Freedom. And I opened it up, and I saw it was the first edition, which I thought was pretty cool. And then I found inside a letter, and I opened the letter. It was from Coretta Scott King. And she said, Dear Jean, you know, thank you so much for your support of our movement and for all the work you do on behalf of uh, peace and brotherhood, you know, in the world, you know, signed gratefully, you know, Coretta Scott King. And immediately I thought, <laughs> wait a minute, like, who is this guy? So the next book I pulled off was the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And so on one of the early pages, there was this long inscription. Mm. And it was from Bill Wilson, who's the co-founder of AA, really the author of the big book of AA. And again, dear Gene, you know, thank you so much for all the work you did to make AA what it is today, for helping us uh, bring it into print and for becoming, you know, such a dear friend for so many, you know, decades of my life. Signed, you know, Bill Wilson. Yeah. So then I'm thinking, who, who is this guy and why have I, why have I never heard of him? And I find other books by Harry Emerson Fosdick, who's probably until Martin Luther King and Billy Graham, the most famous preacher in 20th century America in the, in the United States and a book by Dorothy Day, uh, founder of the Catholic worker, her autobiography, The Long Loneliness. And so many of these books have letters in them, uh, photographs in them. And so it got me really excited that I was onto something. And so I thought, okay, maybe, maybe they want the books appraised or something. And they think I'm going to have some idea of the value of the book. So, so I went back to that big book of AA mm-hmm. and I said, you know, this is a really valuable book. I mean, this is the co-founder author of the book, even though it's an anonymous book, you know, it's probably worth five or $10,000, you know, it's mm-hmm. and Walter son-in-law, he said, no, 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 we're not, we're not interested in selling the books. We want to keep them together, find some place we can give the books away where they'll be, you know, kept together. So the family's focus was really on the books. Right. But then I was noticing all these papers in them and I'm a historian of religion. So I said, well, do you have any papers? And he sort of tilted his head back and he laughed and he said, oh my gosh, they never threw anything away. <laughs> and I'm thinking, you know, ding, ding, ding. Yes, you know. exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's just what you want to hear. And so and he took five me minutes basement, from your house. Crazy. Five minutes away. And then over the next few months, I would just get calls from Walter and he'd say, I've got another box for you. Oh, I found a trunk of letters. Wow. You know, oh, there's three bags of Christmas cards, you know, and I, I'd go over and 
and I'd paw through it all. And so you discover that the uh, the owner of all these books and papers was a man named Eugene Xman, and Eugene was raised a, uh, a fundamentalist Baptist farm boy from Ohio, who somehow ended up as the head of religion publishing for what was then Harper and Row, then became Harper San Francisco, then became Harper One, which is like the premier commercial publishing of religion books, I don't know, in the world, but definitely in the United States. And he, he was there for almost 50 years. So you had kind of the archive and the personal belongings of sort of the puppet master of what you call in the book um, the genealogy of modern American religion. And this all started because Eugene, as a farm boy, had a mystical experience. Tell us about his mystical experience. So he spent his days every week, all but Sundays, on the farm. And they had a workhorse that would help plow the fields. But he was a kind of a nerdy kid. He used to try to do the plowing while he was reading books. Uh, one of his <laughs> favorite was Luce May Alcott, Little Women. Oh. So a kind of dutiful church kid. And so the minister invited him to Bible study. And he was being taken by his horse to the Bible study. And they were passing by the graveyard. And the horse just stopped for some reason and pulled back. Mm-hmm. And Exman describes that about six different places he writes about this experience, both private and public. He said he saw a light. He mm-hmm. said he felt a rush of energy moving through his body. He said he felt lifted up out of his body and that he saw God and yeah. that he felt he would never doubt God again. Right. And it was an extraordinary, important experience to him. My understanding of his professional career is that it was really motivated throughout by a desire to understand what had happened to him by finding other people who had had similar experiences. And then also by turning those friends into authors who would publish books for him often about their own biographies, their own autobiographies in which a mystical experience an encounter with God had played an important role. And I think that was really the motivator throughout his whole life to take on what he saw as a mission of religion publishing in order to normalize and analyze this extraordinary form of encounter with with the divine. Right. And he and he was how old was he at this point? 16, I think. Yeah, I think when he's he 16 ha- or 17 years old. Yeah. yeah. He ends up going to um seminary, correct? That's right. He goes to University yeah. of Chicago Seminary. And he ends up applying for a job in New York at Harper and he's all of 27 years old, correct? <laughs> I'm, yes, that's right. <laughs> he gets the job. He and his wife, Sonny, move to New York. And here's this Ohio farm boy trained in religion, is now the head of religion publishing at Harper and Brothers. And this is 1928. Now, one of the things that most influenced Eugene Xman in his career was he read William James's The Varieties of Religious Experience when he was in school. For our listeners who may not be familiar with that book, give us a little encapsulation of what that book is and what was Xman's big takeaway 
Well, the book is a collection of religious experiences, and it's an analysis of them. Two of the major forms of experience were conversion and mysticism. So in there, as a reader, X-Men could find all these accounts of people who had experiences that were somewhat similar and in certain ways different from that mystical experience that he had. But as James shared these experiences of these various people, he he analyzed them and he said that he saw the essence of religion um, as individual rather than social and as feeling rather than thinking or doctrine, and that the highest form of religion was the mystical encounter between the individual person and the divine. Mm. And all of that just ticked X-Men's boxes. The, those ideas were not new to him. They weren't even new to James. I mean, you can find a genealogy of, of those ideas that go back to the first great awakening of the 1740s. And in the transcendentalists, people like Henry David Thoreau and, and Ralph Waldo Emerson, who are finding God inside themselves and inside nature. Um, but James tries to analyze those experiences. And, and similarly, X-Men is really a popularizer of this idea. So he starts creating a stable of authors who are somehow, I would say, mystic. They're into experience. Um, and you write in the book that his instructions to his authors were always, it's not tell the story of your religion or your dogma or describe your beliefs, but tell the story of your experience. If he would be at a, a retreat and people would start talking about doctrine, he would say, no, that's not why we're here. Let's not right. argue about how we disagree about how much of a God Jesus was or how much of a human Jesus was. Mm -hmm. I think the people to whom he was attracted were people who had had mystical experiences, but really importantly, did not have those experiences transform them into people who just wanted to look at themselves, that the encounter with the divine had somehow made them look outward. And mm. typically that would manifest in some kind of political action or work for social justice. He also did something that kind of a reporter would do. Um, he would not just meet them or call them into his office. He would go and meet these people where they lived and worked and engage in whatever spiritual activities uh, with them. Let's have a list of some of Eugene Xman's authors. I've got Aldous Huxley, D.T. Suzuki, uh, Richard Niber, Dorothy Day, Houston Smith, Pierre Teilhard du Chardin, and Mircea Eliade and Jiddu Krishnamurti. I mean, it's like it's like the uh, if you were assembling an all-star baseball team of religion writers, that's your team right there. Yeah, certainly for the mid-20th century. And and you left off H. Richard Niebuhr, who was Ronald Niebuhr's brother. Right. And he also published, he, he published Houston Smith. Um, Houston Smith's book, uh, The Religions of Man, published in the late 50s, but later was renamed The World's Religions. Right. That sold three and a half million copies. That has been almost certainly the most influential book in religious studies at the classroom level right. from the 60s forward. And talk about an experience religion is experience book that's Houston Smith going around yes and participating in Islam in Buddhism and Hinduism uh, in rituals and those traditions and 
sort of trying to, as an outsider, get as much of an insider look as he can right. at these different uh, religious traditions. Mm. And that doesn't even mention Dr. Martin Luther King, Albert Schweitzer, Howard Thurman. Uh, I mean, just, it's amazing. Now, X-Men didn't work on these books alone. And um, a big part of the book is his relationship, both professional and personal, with a woman named Marguerite Bro. There's probably a thousand letters from her mm. in this archive that I found. She was very interested in what we now call parapsychology. Uh, she was a Disciples of Christ Protestant. And she connected with X-Men in the early 40s. Uh, in terms of interest she had in mediums who seemed to be communicating with the dead, they sort of bonded over that conversation. And mm -hmm. then pretty quickly, she started editing books for him. She started working as a book fixer for him as a freelancer. She would go and visit authors and stay with them for many days in their homes often and ghostwrite their books or assist them with writing their books. She had her hand on hundreds of different books that X-Men uh, published for over a period of two or three decades. Mm. And they had a really intense personal relationship. I mean, they, you can see that in their, in their letters. Uh, they loved each other. They mm -hmm. challenged each other. She pushed him to do things more in parapsychology. They had a kind of planned fantasy to, for him to leave Harper and for them to go out to the Midwest and start their own publishing venture that would be nonprofit that would just publish great books and not publish some of the fluffy books that X-Men felt he had to publish in order to keep up his numbers. Mm. I talk in the book about whether they had an affair, and I don't have any real evidence that they necessarily did, but it's really clear that she was the most influential person in his professional life and maybe the most influential person in his entire life. That's author Stephen Prothero on his new book, God the Bestseller. When we come back, we'll explore how the books X-Men and Bro published are responsible for today's trend towards spiritual but not religious. You are listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Stay with us. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. 
Thank you, and let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Kimberly Winston. You've been listening to me talking with Stephen Prothero of Boston University. Prothero is the author of 10 books about American religion, but his latest made him reconsider some of his long-held ideas about the faithful. Here's more of our conversation. In the book, you say that X-Men and Bro together reimagined and reshaped American religion through the books that they published. And I want to know what you mean by that. Where do we see the their fingerprints today? And specifically, I'm referring to, I, I wrote down this quote from the book. Somehow he managed to reshape modern American religion, redirecting the lives of millions of Americans from Protestantism to pluralism, from dogma to feeling, and from organized religion to the religion of experience. So tell, tell us how that happened. Yeah, so when he arrives in New York, there's a little bit of a boom in interest among New York City publishers in religion. Mm-hmm. But the way religion publishing worked then was you would find a Baptist minister, and the Baptist minister would write Baptist things to a Baptist audience. And then the book would be sold in a Baptist bookstore. So it was very denominationally driven. And it was focused on theology and doctrine for the most part. And X-Men immediately saw that he didn't want to be doing that, both for reasons of mission and for reasons of market. Mm-hmm. You just, mm-hmm. just sell more books if you got the, the same Baptist minister to not write in this Baptisty way, but write in what X-Men called a more religious way, like a mm-hmm. way that could be read not only by other Christians, but also by non-Protestants or by Jews who might be interested in the religious psychology. And he talked about this as a shift from theology to religion. Over time, the word religion itself didn't really do the work he wanted it to do. You know, religion seemed too narrow. It seemed to smell of what we now would call organized religion or institutional religion rather than the more personal feeling side of religion. And in that shift from denominational religion to a broader understandings of religion. He started publishing his Hindu friends that he met out in California, and he started publishing people like D.T. Suzuki in Buddhism. He also uh, started publishing Jewish authors uh, like Martin Buber and the civil rights pioneer Abram Heschel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so so he's, he's doing this move from his Protestant upbringing to pluralism. But at the same time, and I think even prior to that move, is a shift from, it's not about belief, it's about experience. Right. And once you think religion is really about experience, it's about experiencing God, then why does it matter whether you're a Baptist or a Lutheran or a Protestant or a Catholic or a Zen Buddhist? You know, mm-hmm. you're still trying to do the same thing. And so he also moves American religion toward this idea that we refer to as perennialism, this idea that there's a perennial religion undergirding all the historical religions, and it's essentially 
you know, the encounter with God mm-hmm. that William James had written about under this rubric of mysticism. So all this, this concatenation of stuff um, is very popular now in the United States. You know, this idea that there's something magical happening inside the human person when they can somehow connect with what people refer to as the divine. That's really what, what's going on. And not to suggest that Eugene Xman and Marguerite Bro, they are singularly responsible for our focus today on spiritual but not religious. Because, you know, prior to picking up this book, I never heard of Eugene Xman. You never heard of Eugene Xman before you went into that. You know, who was this guy? But you argue in the book that the authors that they cultivated, that they published, I mean, they're all still in print. They're, I mean, that that shelf, the, the list of authors reads like a shelf of what you would study if you do religious studies in school. How influential were they? in getting us to where we are today with this renewed interest in spiritual but not religious. There were some scholars who knew, found this chapter in a wonderful book by uh, Matt Hedstrom that was about X-Men's career. Lee Schmidt at Washington University in St. Louis had a few pages about X-Men in another uh, book he wrote about about seekers in American religious life. So there were, there were people who knew, but he was not then, nor is he yet, a well-known figure in American religious history. I think the thing that he and Bro um, do is that they popularize William James. And more broadly, they popularize this idea that religion is about experience that runs through revivalism and Pentecostalism and William James. I don't think of X-Men as an innovator so much. I think about him as a popularizer. He was really smart for knowing what kind of books would sell. He was really good at at marketing the books. He always was pushing his authors to write for broad audiences. Don't just write for Baptists. Don't just write for Christians. Don't just write for religious people. There's non-religious people who can benefit from this. And as he's doing all this, he's sort of thinking he's saving the world. You know, he's sort of, I mean, he's living in this period of crisis, a, a crisis of meaning, a crisis of culture that is the West in the wake of World War One and World War Two, mm-hmm. and he thinks the solution is God, and the only way to get to God is through an individual person encountering God, because that's where it happens. It doesn't happen in church when you're singing a hymn. Mm-hmm. Um, it's much more likely to happen in a small group where people are sitting around talking, or in moments of of private meditation. Mm-hmm. So, I think that's his role. I think he's a popularizer rather than an innovator. Mm-hmm. But he was very smart in knowing how to translate academic ideas into popular language that people could understand. And yet he had some blind spots, which you talk about, I think, mostly in the chapter on publishing Dorothy Day. Well, his blind spot was that even as he brought in the religion category to be more pluralistic, he kept thinking of religion largely in Protestant terms. Mm-hmm. And so when it came to Dorothy Day... In some ways, what he was doing was very similar to what he always did, which is, hey, don't just write for Catholics, write for Protestants too, write for Mm -hmm. general religion readers, because we want the book to be read widely, we want it to sell widely, we want it to have the most influence, and we think Protestants should know about the Catholic worker. We think Protestants should know about your um, activism, about you you know, going to jail on behalf of the poor, because you believe Jesus is a God who cares about fundamentally about the poor. Uh, 
And so, but so, so that was the very broad thing. But then there were times when she would be told, can just like tone down the Catholicism. And, and you see when they're marketing the book, when they're marketing the long loneliness, which is now a classic in American religion publishing, um, they don't even mention that she's Catholic. They call her, oh my they call her like St. <laughs> Francis of the streets, right? And St. Francis is the sort of most popular Catholic saint among Protestants at the time. Right. Right. So not a controversial saint, you know, just seen as like a nature saint and loves mm-hmm. the animals. And then it comes up a little bit more clearly in some other, some other books where, where Bro is working on it and, and X-Men is overseeing it, where, for example, there's an autobiography about a Catholic a woman and she's describing prayers to the baby Jesus and Marguerite Bro is writing to her and saying, I would never tell you how to pray or anything, but do we really have to have the prayers to the baby Jesus thing? Protestant readers don't pray to the baby Jesus. Right. You know, that's a Catholic thing. Um, is that is that necessary? So you see there the Protestant imagination shaping Catholicism in its own image. Right. And just thinking it's normal to do that. You write in the beginning of the book that when you found the archive you thought maybe it had something to teach you that you needed to know. What was that? (laughs) Well, first of all, it's just weird that I found this archive. Not that I found an archive, because people find archives all the time, but when you find an archive that sort of almost seems like the universe has picked you to find it, because you've written an entire book against the idea that all religions are one, different paths up the same mountain. I wrote a book years ago called God is Not One. Yes. I wrote that book against Houston Smith's book, The Religions of, of Man. Yes. And that was published by X-Men, and X-Men was a perennialist. X-Men believed that stuff. And so I got to see where that idea came from. And one way of understanding the book is as a kind of a backstory of the perennial philosophy, a backstory of how mm. did so many people come to this idea that religions are essentially the same, and they're only inessentially different. Uh, and I think I came to have greater respect for that idea. I still mm. think it's wrong. Like it's wrong from a historical perspective and it is insufficiently empathetic toward people of other religions because you're always imposing on them whatever view you think, whatever you think's on the top of the mountain, you're always imagining it's on the top of the other people's mountain and it isn't necessarily the case. Mm-hmm. And you're always having to say that things are inessential to real the real one true religion that are actually essential to many people, whether that's that there's one God rather than many, or whether that's Jesus is the one savior and the other saviors aren't going to get you to heaven or, you know, that the Buddhist four noble truths are really the greatest truths, whatever that might be. Um, So there's problems with that idea, but that idea arises amidst global war. I mean, you can find it earlier in, in world history, but, when Aldous Huxley publishes in the 40s, the perennial philosophy, you know, he's, he's doing that amidst World War II and in the wake of World War I and the Great Depression and, and the fear that the world can be destroyed by animosity that is often driven by religion. And so if we could just agree to disagree about religion or we agree that, that all the religions are essentially the same, then maybe we could stop that. So I think as a social justice social Mm -hmm. ethics project i came to appreciate that 
idea more. And I came to be really intrigued to see how it made its way in the world and how it did so through the power of books. We need to remember that, that this is a time when books have tremendous power and they're not competing with television and the internet and artificial intelligence like they are now. Mm. Stephen Prothero is the professor of religion at Boston University and the author of a new book, God the Best Seller. We'll have links to the new book as well as the articles referenced on this week's show notes at interfaithradio.org. Coming up after the break, we're going to take a closer look at the legacy of this movement. What do people who are spiritual but not religious believe? Stay with us. You're listening to Inspired a production of Interfaith Voices.